We've been giving financial institutions a hard time for their sluggish adoption of cryptos, but perhaps we need to give that a rethink. Almost without notice last week, Investec successfully tested a digital wallet. It's actually called a digital asset vault, which is a secure way to store and transfer crypto assets. This is not yet released to the public. It's in the test phase at the moment, but clearly something big is in the offing. Chris Becker is blockchain lead at Investec Bank, and he joins us to bring us up to speed on what's happening in the world of crypto in financial institutions. Chris, welcome. This is quite a big deal. Investec successfully testing a digital vault, and it seems like it works like a charm. Uh, why is this important and why should we be excited about this? Look, I think it's it's important because, like you say, financial institutions have been given a hard time around blockchain tech and adopting crypto assets. I think what this demonstrates is that many people have this misconception that things like Bitcoin and Ether and other crypto assets like stablecoins is something that operates exclusively in a sort of parallel universe to the traditional financial system. And... When we first started doing research and development around blockchain technologies and crypto assets uh, a few years ago in 2017, when we started looking at it really seriously, we realized that just a new type of financial network, it's just an internet protocol for assets and is actually quite possible for a, a regulated and traditional financial institution like a commercial bank to connect up to these technologies. And so on the back of that realization, we moved ahead to say, any use cases that might live on a blockchain network in the future. In order to leverage the benefits of that and offer it through to the commercial bank and internal stakeholders or businesses or potentially to external clients, we need the capabilities to be able to connect to blockchain technologies. And so that's the capability that we've built in the digital asset vault. Like you say, it's, it's in a testing phase at the moment. So the regulatory bodies looking at financial institutions, the South Africa, the South African Reserve Bank, the Financial Intelligence Center, the SARS, uh, financial surveillance at the National Treasury. They had all created this intergovernmental fintech working group, the IFWG, that's created a, a sort of world-leading regulatory sandbox. So where if, if there's a traditional business that's wanting to innovate, where that innovation operates in a space where there's some regulatory uncertainties and, and gray areas or something that's not regulated at all, they give you the ability to apply and to launch a product within that environment, which gives you a safer space in order to innovate and to see how you can bring these things, you know, to clients and, and to leverage these technologies. So I think that's why it's, uh, it's important. It's to make, you know, it makes a statement that it is possible. Right. Investec does seem to be ahead of the pack on this one. And I think just explain in this digital vault, what, what kind of assets can you store in there? And why is it particularly safe? I ask that because you've got all of these crypto exchanges which are offering secure custody of your Bitcoin or your Ether, whatever it is. How's this different? Look, so the banks like us have tremendous spend on information security, you know, bank-grade secure systems. Um, we are in the business of custodying financial information. Most of that information these days is electronic. Uh, it makes logical sense to move the next step into protecting other assets on blockchains. You asked a question around which, which assets in particular will be custodied. Any blockchain asset is able to be custodied. Yeah, that means it means bitcoins, it means ethers, it means uh, stable coins that the central bank, the Saab, might issue in the future. Project Coca was just announced by the Saab. It's it's the second phase of the first phase of of Project Coca, where there's been innovation with uh, blockchain tech. 
In this project in particular, the financial industry alongside the Saab is going to be tokenizing debentures, traditional debentures, onto a blockchain, as well as RANDs. Just and explain there, what, what do we mean by tokenizing debentures? So what blockchains are, they ledgers. They're ledgers kind of like spreadsheets, but they're more secure spreadsheets. And uh, if you want to keep track of an asset or a liability at a bank, you're using complicated spreadsheets effectively. What a blockchain gives you the ability to do is have these distributed ledgers so banks can communicate value with each other over these types of technologies. So let's say you have something like an equity that's registered on the JSE. The JSE has technology systems that keeps track of the equity and the ownership of that equity. It's just a digitized token. It's a tokenized asset. You can take the same digital information and replicate that on a blockchain uh, in order to record the information on a blockchain and to transfer it between different owners on the blockchain. That's effectively what, what we'd be looking at in Project Corka. But to take a step back to the point of, of a digital asset vault is, if you're going to connect to a network like this, you need the capabilities to connect. So it's one thing to just tokenize an asset onto a blockchain and it's the benches and rands and you get all the benefits of you know DLTs and, and smart contracts to have delivery versus payment type transactions. All right, so DLT means a distributed uh, ledger, ledger. Right? Yeah. yeah, but if you don't have a wallet that's, that's bank-grade secure, you still have a vulnerability and weakness in the system. Right. And that's where you speak to you know the risk of hacks. There have obviously been several exchanges around the world uh, that have been hacked and these crypto assets get stolen. I think what trusted traditional financial institutions could bring to the space is that level of bank grade security and trust to secure assets. We're talking about uh, Aluno or one of the exchanges here in South Africa. They have invested a lot of money into secure custody of digital assets. And they, there's a term that they use called cold storage. So that basically means it's disconnected from the internet. But there's a lot of other layers of security that goes on top of that, right? Is yours different to that? Or does it have to be uh, cold storage or hot storage? Tell us a little bit about the, the technology behind it. Look, so technology inside banks, banks are doing cryptography every day. It's part of your daily course of business. Chip and pin credit cards are secured by a public-private key cryptography. A lot of value sits in bank ledgers behind card systems. Okay, If bank technology systems had to get breached today, a huge amount in deposits could effectively be stolen. Okay, So banks have been spending billions upon billions of rands for decades since computers have first been used in, in electronic financial services to secure these ledgers. So with all respect to to you know, crypto asset service providers like you know some of the new exchanges, they've got good technology systems. I'm not going to take that away from them, but banks have been in this game for a very long time. We take it very seriously. That's partly why banks have not moved that fast into getting into the space. Really been taking a very close look in, in in terms of where we could be offering value and providing real uh, you know services that benefit customers. Okay, what does this tell us, this new vault, this digital vault that you've developed? What does it tell us about Investec's plans in the crypto or the blockchain space? Look, it doesn't tell us anything about our plans at this point just yet. It tells, it tells you that we are serious about what's going on here. We, we're paying attention. Um, we've got a research and development team where we are innovating and we're trying to see uh, which types of products we could take to market, what would fit in the regulatory landscape. So that's where we're at. You know, we, there are ideas of, of where a product like this could go in the future. Um, you know, it's an entirely new asset class. It's seeing a lot of institutional and corporate adoption at the moment. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, Elon Musk and Tesla dropped a bombshell, but 2020 was a great year for institutional adoption from hedge funds to asset managers to, um, you know, endowment funds in, in the U.S., the likes of Harvard's endowment funds been invested in crypto assets. Businesses like MicroStrategy has got Bitcoin on their balance sheets now. Square, which is a payments business founded by Jack Dorsey, which is also the founder of Twitter, also has Bitcoin on their balance sheet. And they engaged in, in uh, almost like transactional payments using Bitcoin and dollars. Then obviously Tesla has one, been one of the more recent ones. But we've also just seen yesterday that MasterCard is getting into the game. So MasterCard is going to allow Bitcoin and other crypto assets to run over their payment rails. Visa is doing the same thing. And PayPal obviously got involved too. So there's a lot going on here. The product, the innovation that we're busy with at the moment has, has a huge amount of utility for any of these applications, really. And we need to think about the next steps. We, we're not quite there yet. Um, but we are, we are thinking about that seriously. Why do you think financial institutions have been slow to adopt cryptos? You did kind of mention that there's been a lot of investment in cryptography over the years, and I guess security of your existing systems is, is paramount. But th- this train is kind of running away, is it not? You mentioned the Tesla investing $1.5 billion into Bitcoin. And that seems to have been as a result of some persuasion, which came from uh, Michael Saylor from MicroStrategy. So, and, and he's become an evangelist for, for Bitcoin. He's going out there, and you can be sure he's talking to the guy, you know, guys at Apple and Microsoft and, and places like that. And I think one of the fears that is coming out is that there's going to be a shortage of Bitcoin, ultimately. So brings me back to my question, why are financial institutions so slow? The corporate take-up is there, the retail take-up is there, but the banks don't seem to be following through. It's a new network. It's a new financial network. It's not very easy to go and connect to one of these new financial technologies and systems. It takes time. Um, I think in particular, there's a lot of work that needs to happen on on the risk management and compliance side of a financial institution. Um, I guess that makes it easier for some of these other businesses who don't have to think and worry about that to get involved at this point. So in a sense, there's a level of regulatory arbitrage right now. It might not remain for a very long time. I'll also say that there's... Sorry, you better explain what we mean by regulatory arbitrage. Okay, so so it's just a simple concept that some uh, types of businesses wanting to get involved in, let's say, Bitcoin at this point, have regulatory obligations that are more are additional constraints in your freedom and ability to go and connect to these networks. Versus, say, Tesla, who's just a business who just wants to put it on their balance sheet. And the next thing they say is, hey, we understand this asset. We want it on our balance sheet. Now we need to find a way to go and earn it so you can pay us in it. That, by the way, is a very powerful feedback loop in businesses putting assets like this on their balance sheet who then suddenly want to earn it. They say to their customers, you can pay us in it. That's a juggernaut of of, uh, network effects. But it's a little bit harder just for banks to do that. There's a lot of work that needs to happen in the background. Right. Yes, of course, Tesla said you can now pay us, or n- not yet, but very soon you'll be able to uh, buy cars in Bitcoin. Uh, and if you, you go for the bottom, uh, the, the lower entry car, it actually costs less than a Bitcoin, uh, which is quite fascinating. It wasn't the case a month ago. You know? Yeah. I think the other thing, uh, MicroStrategy and Square, they took a substantial part of their cash holdings and they put it into Bitcoin Mm. last year. MicroStrategy's share price has gone up double since then, based purely on the Bitcoin holding that they've got. So this is kind of a a new area that we're entering into Mm. in in the corporate world. Give us your view of how these technologies that we've been talking about, how is that going to change the financial landscape in the next few years? 
Are we really going to see a move from Bitcoin as a kind of a store of value to more payments type uh, processes? Look, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's obviously very, very hard to say how things like these evolve. Um, Bitcoin has taken, if you just look in the last five years, it's taken a direction that people weren't quite expecting it to go in. So it always had this feature of being a store of value and scarce. You spoke about the scarcity and that there might not be enough Bitcoins. I think obviously the release valve there is if, if a lot of people want a Bitcoin, the price is going to have to go up dramatically. So the market cap grows. But it's moved away from being a medium of payment as much as it is a store of value. And it looks like it might be becoming more of a digital gold and a com- competitor with gold, but an le- electronic version of it. That's in, in many ways better than gold. And so it looks like it's being used as an asset like that, as a sort of defensive capital preservation asset. That's certainly what Michael Saylor and Jack Dorsey and these guys are, are talking about and thinking. If that's the way it goes, it's hard to see how it becomes a payment instrument on the main blockchain layer. It would need to scale in layer two solutions. And they get, this gets quite technical, but you're going to need to see these companies building new settlement layers on top of the base technology in order to make it useful as a currency. I think that's going to happen. You know, there are technologies like the Lightning Network that makes that possible, and it makes Bitcoin extremely scalable and very cheap to transact in. I mean, let's talk about the DeFi space. Mm. DeFi stands for Mm. Decentralized Finance. Okay, that is really a whole new financial architecture which is being built outside of the traditional financial world where you can lend, you can borrow, you can earn interest, you can can buy an insurance contract, you can do all sorts of things, and there's no intermediary. In other words, you can go onto one of these decentralized mm. exchanges and I can buy from a guy I've never met. I, mm. I don't even need to trust him because he's going to mm. be selling me a Bitcoin or he's going to be selling me an Ethereum mm. and I'm going to be giving him currency for that. These decentralized exchanges or decentralized finance is really taking off. Mm. Um, are banks going to get left behind in this? Look, it's, um, banks are not the innovators there at the moment. Uh, banks... Banks are obviously ahead of DeFi in the sense that they are the incumbents, but there's a lot of innovation happening and it's growing rapidly in the decentralized finance space, particularly on Ethereum. I mean, that's where the bulk of this, 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 these, these applications live and sit. But bear in mind, these are financial networks that a bank can connect to. So if you've got an automated market maker, like a stock exchange, concrete example being Uniswap on Ethereum, There's no reason that a traditional bank who's got uh, the capabilities to connect to the Ethereum blockchain can't offer those smart contract systems through to their customers directly. And so you can think of this as just another financial network that sits behind the customer experience. You can think of it as if you make an international payment, you're going to be using Swift at your bank. You don't really think about Swift. It's there, though. Uh, you can use it. And DeFi, I think, is going to play a similar role in traditional banking going forward. We, My view, my sense is the direction that this is going in, banks will be able to just connect to these systems and, and offer the benefits that they, they, they offer to customers through to them. Uh, yeah. Right. Yeah, Uniswap, of course, is, is a decentralized exchange. So you can actually, you can purchase any number of cryptocurrencies mm-hmm. on it. Um, the fees on Uniswap and these other decentralized exchanges, they're all over the place. Now, that is a yeah. problem with Ethereum is, this is that the network is so clogged. And the more yeah. clogged it is, the, the higher, they call yeah. it gas fees, right? Yes. The higher the cost there. So there, there are technical problems there. But I think it's important to note that in the DeFi space, the, the number of assets that have been transacted through DeFi, I think it's mm-hmm. gone from almost nothing a year ago mm-hmm. to about 70 billion 
yeah, it's, at the moment. It's explosive growth at the moment. There's there's a lot going on there. Many new projects. Um, I think the next mania in in a sort of crypto bubble will be driven and led by a mania about the possibilities of DeFi and how it could potentially change the world of finance. And so there are going to be some some horses there that you're going to want to back and maybe some yes. that are going to just fall by the wayside. The, the, my sense is there are going to be some very big winners that come out of the space. Um, there's going to be a bubble similar to the tech bubble. Uh, a lot of these things will go to close to naught and to naught, uh, but there'll be a few really, really big winners that come out of it. Um, and here's the thing. Banks don't need to be leading the charge in innovation there. Banks can be taking taking a step back, watching how this evolves. And when the common standards for decentralized finance emerge, when the leaders are known, uh, I think banks will be able to just connect to them. The risk, of course, is that other businesses can also connect to them now. There's no restrictions on Apple or Samsung, who's already got a crypto wallet specifically for Ethereum, that would also be able to connect and offer these decentralized financial services through to their networks of customers. So, so that seems to be the real risk to banking. It's not so much what's being built, it's, it's how it uh, creates a competitive landscape that's different and unique. By the way, what do you think, of, uh, you've obviously been following, there, there's still a lot of naysayers around cryptos and Bitcoin, one of them being Nouriel Roubini, mm. who's a professor at New York University, and mm. he says its intrinsic value is zero. What do you mm. say to that? Look, nothing has an intrinsic value. All value is subjective. It's determined by supply and demand. If, if something has utility to someone, they're gonna value it. That, so that's the first point. There's nothing that has intrinsic value. He's making the argument, for example, that gold has some intrinsic value. No, it doesn't. He's pointing to its industrial use. It's a use that he's pointing to, and that would give it value. If gold's monetary value and premium was to disappear, in other words, if no one suddenly valued gold as money, its price would absolutely plummet to find a new level in line with its industrial demand. Um, so there's no real intrinsic value of anything. Um, and I would say the arguments that he's making around around Bitcoin and Ethereum in several instances are disingenuous. Um, in several instances are quite misinformed. Um, in is, some areas, he's Is he making a right. fool of himself, do you think? Look, I think with, for people who have been grappling with some of these 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 technological discussions and debates uh, for a while uh, it seems it seems a little a little silly and uh, it seems a little he's getting a bit angry about something and he and he's he's fighting against straw men. The, the other one, of course, is Peter Schiff, you know, who's mm. a very well known uh, libertarian type mm. fund manager. He's been saying this is this, the same kind of thing. Mm. Um, and when you look at what's happened over the last year, these guys don't seem to go quiet. They, I think mm. they double down and they get louder. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. And there's a danger that they're going to suffer severe reputational damage as a result of this. Yeah, look, I, I think they don't really care. You know, there's, you can see it in the world right now. Um, there are some arguments that almost seem irreconcilable, and it, and it has to do with the assumptions that people operate from. It seems like uh, Peter Schiff's assumption is that gold is some intrinsic value. Uh, and it's always going to have value, and it's been around for 5,000 years, and, and there's something electronic now. It doesn't actually have value. Well, I'd like to ask Peter Schiff if I can delete all of his servers and his mobile device and all the pictures that he might own, and 
because well it doesn't have any value to you well bitcoin's data you know right. ethereum's data it's got value it's it's actually real yes um and then neural rubini i think his argument really is just his assumptions are you can't have a decentralized private money that's not issued and and governed and managed by an intermediary i think that's been proven wrong uh, and i think it would kind of be like saying you know the internet sucks because it's not fast enough um, and people in the early 90s made those arguments. But there are always technological solutions to some of these problems. And I think what's frustrating about about both of those those uh, men is that they're not they're not taking uh, you know the initiative to try and solve some of these problems. They their assumption is it's not going to work, and so they just keep hammering that point. Right. Yeah. I, I do think that this is a boat that has sailed away from them. Um, and the, you know the performance of Bitcoin and, and cryptos generally over the last couple of years has been mm. nothing short of staggering. I, I don't no, know look, how you I mean, fight that. It must be. It must be. I mean, it's mind-boggling when you look at the graphs of these assets. You know, the Bitcoin exponential growth. I mean, it's growing at two hundred percent year on year every year. Um, it must just constantly look like a bubble. Um, but w- when you sort of really get your head around it, it's. It's uh, it's mind blowing in the sense that it's valued by Metcalf's law, which is the square of the number of users on a network. It's a network effect asset. Uh, that's what it is. And so the more people adopt this and want to use it, the more the price just goes up. It's got one way to go. And, and, and it is mind blowing. We've never seen an asset like this perfectly displaying Metcalf's law. And there's been studies looking at this. I mean, it holds up perfectly. We've never seen a monetary asset like this being born from nothing. So, yeah, it's, it's mind-boggling. Uh, right. It's, it's an amazing Just a, a question. It, it's a story <laughs> that I wrote for MoneyWeb uh, at 700,000 because Bitcoin crashed through 700,000 yesterday or the day before. Uh, it has come back a little bit, but not much. And uh, the question that is being asked, even people here in MoneyWeb, you know, is, is, is I've, I've missed this. Uh, it's too late. And uh, the question I'm trying to ask is, is it cheap at the price? At 700,000 Rand, is it cheap at the price? I don't know. I, can't, I, I, I don't know. I don't know. My sense is that the utility of this network is going up. In other words, it's becoming more useful for various use cases. Uh, I think it'll become it's becoming obvious that it's a useful store of value asset. And so you're seeing big companies adopting it for that purpose. I think in time they're going to realize that it's also a good payment asset and they're going to then build technological solutions to solve for the payment challenges and the scalability issues. And then it becomes very useful as a payment asset. Um, If you look at the number of users on the network right now, it's around 100 million people, I'd say at most, who are connected to this monetary network and asset and who own some Bitcoin, let's say. Mm. Um, Ethereum, it's even lower. Um, my my sense is because it's a native in, money over internet protocol, most people on the planet will be connected to this in some form or other in the future. So there, might, there, there is likely to be billions of people who are connected to this network. And so it means it's not late in the game, if that makes sense. Uh, but yeah, it needs to be continuous innovation and technological progress and, and the usefulness of these things need to increase in order for that type of view to materialize. So if anything derails that, obviously then it could go down. I think uh, with what's going on right now, it does seem like the scenario where uh, an asset like a Bitcoin goes to zero seems to be off the table. Uh, and that is a game changer from a risk uh, perspective. Right. 
Chris, final question. I think a, a thing that people maybe don't know about you, you are actually trained as an economist, mm -hmm. and this is how you entered into this. So you, you don't come from necessarily a technical background, mm -hmm. but you come with an economic understanding of how you would value assets like this. But just talk about what you see, what are your plans coming up for the year for Investec Bank? Can you tell us anything about that? Are you going to be making a big announcement soon or what? Look, we um, are uh, testing the digital asset vault in a regulatory sandbox, as we discussed earlier. Uh, our focus is on that, and our focus is on establishing how we can move this forward, if at all. Um, the, the, yeah, that's what we focused on right now. We're going to leave it there. That was Chris Becker, who is blockchain lead at Investec Bank.